Well, good morning, Grace. Really glad that you're here either in person or online. We are beginning a new series this morning, and we are looking into the prophet uh, Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah has a book in the Old Testament. If you want to say, I know you, you read that already this morning, but we're going to, pack, we're going to unpack it a little bit uh, today. If you want to get that ready on your device or in your Bible before, uh, while you're doing that, I want to talk about what we call Rooted here at Grace Fellowship. This is a 10-week a small group uh, experience that is designed to deepen your faith and strengthen your discipleship. Whether you are a new believer or a seasoned believer, it doesn't matter where you are on your spiritual journey, Rooted is designed to take you to the next level. It is beginning in January. You can find this card maybe in your seat back or definitely at Connection Point. There is a QR code on your bulletin that you can scan, and that will take you to the webpage to answer all of those uh, particular questions that you might have about Rooted, but we would encourage you to consider that as your next spiritual step. So how was your Thanksgiving? I asked a lot of people that over the last month. Uh, many of you, the most common response I got was different. Thanksgiving was different. How many of your Thanksgivings were different this year? Quite a few of you. I think that's just kind of, kind of characteristic of the way things have been uh, for a long time. Christmas is going to be different for a lot of us. 2020 has been a different kind of year. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary finds, uh, has a word of the year every year, and their word of the year, guess what, is pandemic. I think that's a lazy word. I think that's an easy word. I think, I think a, a better word to describe 2020 is the word loss. If I were to give you 30 seconds to write down everything that you've lost over this past year, you would run out of time before you ran out of losses. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I say that just to say this. What, uh, if there was ever a year uh, to joyfully look back at the coming of Jesus... <laughs> And to excitedly look forward to the coming of Jesus again, it would be uh, this year. And that's what we're looking at in this series. We're uh, beginning a series entitled Foretold, prof uh, Promises from the Prophets. We're looking at what God said to us through these men in the Old Testament. Uh, most of these prophets didn't know they were promising when they were prophesying. Some, some of them didn't know they were prophesying when they were prophesying. So you and I have the privilege of living on the other side of those prophecies and living in the promises uh, that those prophecies gave us. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look, be looking at some of those promises. Today, we're looking at the promise of righteousness. Righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. That on the count of three, I want all of us to say the Lord, our righteousness. One, two, three. The Lord, our righteousness. Say it one more time. The Lord, our righteousness. What does this promise mean for us? And to understand it, we've got to go way back to the beginning uh, in creation, in the, the first three chapters of the Bible, where we have the entire human story unfolding before us. Man is created in the image of God. Everything is perfect. Perfect body, relationship, existence, all is declared good. The man and the woman is standing before each other. They're standing before God. The Bible says naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. Now, naked which, by the way, has little to do with physical nudity. I mean, we understand 
that they were naked, but the thing is, they didn't fully understand they were naked. They didn't know what that meant until they had lost it. We don't know what that fully means, to be naked and unashamed, because we've never had that. They didn't know they were naked, but it didn't matter. You and I know when we're naked, and it matters a lot. That's how far removed we are from the garden, naked and unashamed, meaning no reservations, no inhibitions, no desire to run or hide, no need to cover, excuse, or blame, no need to justify or explain, complete honesty and vulnerability, totally exposed and totally accepted. Think about it. What would it be like to live in a world where women never wore makeup? Our men never sucked in their gut. Where everyone told the truth. In fact, checkers wasn't a job position. Naked and unashamed. Friends, there's something about that. We, we were create, there's something that echoes in our soul, something inside of us that tells us, you know what? I think we were meant for that. I think I'm supposed, but I have no idea what that means. I don't know what that looks like because I've never had it. We lost a long time ago and I don't know how to get it back. Well, friends, God gives us the answer in this name, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Now, the word righteousness means a bit more in the Hebrew language than it does in our English language. We understand righteousness to mean to do what is right, uh, to be right in our behavior. A righteous person does what is right. Righteousness refers to a path that is straight as opposed to crooked. It refers to a standard by which one is measured to be right. To be righteous means uh, that you've passed inspection, you've passed the test. But in the Hebrew language, righteousness also has, always has a relational element to it as well. Not, to be right bef- not just to be right before, but to be right with, to be right with. To be righteous means that you've met the standard of acceptability. Uh, you've, you've been approved. You are right. To, you are therefore, to borrow a biblical phrase, you are well-pleasing in the sight of the one who's looking at you, in the eyes of of the one who matters. To be right is to be accepted and approved. We use righteousness in those ways. I need to make this right with you. In other words, there has been a behavior that has created a problem, a wrong behavior. And so we need to make this right. But why do we make, why do we want to make it right? Because there's a relationship here. You know, I need to make this right with you. And then at the end we say, are we okay? Are we okay? Which is saying, am I right with you? Am I once again, well-pleasing? in your sight? Are we, are we okay? And friends, that's, that's, that's being human. We, we want to be right. There's a need for us to be right. And we not just want to be right before, we want to be right with. We want to be right with our parents. We want to be right with our kids, our spouse, our boss, our friends, whatever. And to whatever degree we can achieve it, we there's something in us that has this sense of being naked and unashamed, something that we need to be well-pleasing in the eyes that matter, which of course is the basic human problem because no one in this room has ever been, has never felt naked and unashamed. We've often felt naked and very much ashamed. And so like Adam and Eve, searching for anything that we can find uh, to cover ourselves up, to protect our vulnerabilities, to hide what's really true 
about us. That is the reality. That is the conundrum. We long for it. We've lost it. We can't get it back. And it drives us nuts. We simply cannot deal with it. We really can't. We can't deal with it. I've got to hide the reality of who I am. I've got to protect the image that's projected. We are desperately afraid of being exposed. Friends, that's why lives fall apart. That's why relationships fall apart. Because we can't handle the shame of being naked. And so like Adam, think, think back to Adam and Eve. I mean, they had the perfect marriage and the perfect relationship, the perfect life, the perfect circumstances. The perfect, they were both righteous. They were both well-pleasing in each other's sights. Think, think back to that story. Adam takes a look at Eve and says, whoa, man, you are awesome. You are, you are perfect. This is, this is incredible. We are simpatico. I mean, we are one, baby. And the next moment he looks at God and says, she did it. She's at fault. She's the guilty. If I had a bus, I would throw her under it. And so blame, excuse, self-justification. Why? Because we can't handle it. We can't. We were created for the garden. We were created to be naked. I, have, you ever, have you ever thought about that? I mean, all of you wore clothes to, today. I mean, we appreciate that. But imagine, imagine a world and where clothes were not only, not, not only optional, but, but non-existent. I mean, clothes were just not given a thought. I shudder at the thought, actually. That's how far removed we are from the garden. And the physical aspect of that is just simply the tip of the iceberg of our existence. We have no idea what it feels like to be completely exposed emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, to be right, to be accepted, to be approved. We've lost our innocence. We've lost our purpose. We've lost our significance. We've lost our freedom. And we've tried everything we can to get it back. Friends, that's the human story. Covering shame, searching for significance, compensating for ourselves and justifying our existence and throwing each other under the bus if that would help. But this is the good news, friends. And this is why we're looking at the prophets. To understand the prophets, most of us have this image of the prophets as just a bunch of angry old men telling us that we got what we deserved. That is, that is not the story behind the prophets. In the prophets, in these men that God uses uh, to, to give us these promises is just that. God never exposes the problem without extending the promise. God never exposes the problem without extending the pro- He never leaves us without hope. There is a promise to every problem. There is a promise to, I, I don't, if you're taking notes, write that down because I think that's good. There is a promise to every problem in your life. So in the middle of this story, Genesis chapter 3 We find these words from God. uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? He's talking to Satan here, between you and the woman. He's speaking to our enemy, our adversary, the one who set us up for failure. This is the consequence. There is a consequence to sin that cannot be avoided. So we have strife and conflict and warfare. But then God says there is coming a day when that which is born of woman, the offspring of woman, Jesus himself will crush your head. Now think about this. He says, you will strike his heel, referring to the crucifixion but he will ultimately crush your head, referring to the resurrection. In other words, at the end of the day, everyone will know who the winner of this conflict is. 
and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his name. What is his name? His name is the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Now, again, a question, why isn't he just called the Lord or the righteous Lord? Because friends, he's not just the righteous Lord. He is your righteousness. You're right. He has done what is right to make you right before God and to make you right with God. Your righteousness is the answer to you being right. It is the cover to your shame. Now, all of that to bring us to the prophet Zechariah. What the prophet Jeremiah predicted that we just read a minute ago, the prophet Zechariah illustrates in a vision that God had given him during his ministry. What do you do with the brokenness, the guilt and the shame, all of the stuff that we're trying to cover and compensate for? How do you find freedom from the self-protection and the self-justification? Well, first of all, let's talk about shame. Everybody has it. What is it? We talk about guilt and shame like they're two different things because they are. You can't have one without the other. Guilt... All of us have guilt. It is a black and white thing. You either did it or you didn't do it. If you did it, then you are guilty. And what do you do with your guilt? Well, you confess your guilt. You confess your sin. You say you're sorry. You make attempts to make it right. And then you move on. Case settled, problem solved. Guilt says there is something wrong that I did. But shame goes further to say there is something wrong with who I am. It attacks our identity. And this can happen whether there's a wrong committed or not, whether you did it or someone else did it or nobody did it. We are all tempted to believe this message of shame that we're inadequate, that we're not enough, that we don't measure up, that we don't pass the test, that we are not well-pleasing in the eyes of those who matter. And so Zechariah is given this vision And this vision is of the person Joshua, the high priest. It's not the battle of Jericho, Joshua. It's the high priest during the time of Zechariah. And this picture of Zechariah, the job of the high priest was to go before God on behalf of the people so that the people would be presentable before God. They would enter the Holy of Holies. They would make sacrifices on behalf of the people to make them presentable. In order to make them presentable, the high priest had to be presentable. He had to go through ceremonial cleansing. So not only right in behavior, but right in relationship. He had to be presentable. This is not the case in the vision Zechariah is given. So let's read this. Verse 1, chapter 3, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, we see this several times in the Old Testament. We know this to be the physical manifestation of Jesus himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so Joshua is standing as high priest, standing for Jesus. And it says that Satan is standing beside Joshua, accusing him, accusing him. So get that picture, Jesus, Joshua, and Satan. And Satan is standing there, pointing the finger at Joshua, saying, he did it, (laughs) he did it, he's the guilty party. He is throwing Joshua under the bus. He is throwing shame grenades at Joshua, and he just keeps doing it, accusing, accusing, accusing. What does he he accuse Joshua of? But what does he accuse you of? Doesn't take much. (laughs) I mean, if you can't think of anything, the person sitting next to you has a list. They've already checked it twice. They know you're guilty. Verse three, it says, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before Jesus. The high priest who is supposed to be clean has a problem. Now, I don't want to be graphic about this, but the word in the Hebrew language for filthy that we translate filthy doesn't mean dirt. It means dung. 
So Joshua is not presentable. He is not righteous. And it's bad enough. I mean, cover and compensate all you want, but deep down inside, all of us know that there's something wrong with us. But it's a whole, whole new level of shame to have someone standing beside you pointing that out in front of Jesus, no less, th- throwing accusation and accusation and accusation like the guy who said, every time my wife gets mad at me, she gets so historical. Historical, you mean hysterical, right? No, historical. Every time she gets mad at me, she brings up every wrong thing that I've ever done. Every time. And that's Satan, my friend, not your wife, but that's what Satan does. He throws everything at you and he just keeps doing it. He keeps doing it. He keeps doing it. Accusation after accusation after accusation. He doesn't stop. Don't you ever feel like you feel like that sometimes where you just feel like you just can't get away from how wrong you are. And there's a reason for that, friends. You have an enemy. You have an enemy whose purpose is to kill and steal and destroy. And he is, resent- he is relentless, constantly reminding you of all your failures, accusing and accusing and accusing. And what's worse, as if there could be anything worse, friends, there's something worse. What's the worst is that he's right. <laughs> he's right. You are guilty. I mean, try as, as, as hard as you might. You don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You fail at that every day. You, don't, you certainly don't love your neighbor as yourself. You fail at that every day. The prosecutor has an airtight case and there's no blame or excuse or self-justification strong enough to get you off the hook. You are doomed. But God never exposes the problem without offering the promise. Verse two, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning, get this picture, this is awesome. Is this not a man, excuse me, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Friends, that is you. Believer, that is you. Follower of Jesus, you are a stick, a burning stick snatched from the fire. Bad news, you are a charred piece of wood smelling like smoke. Good news, you have been snatched from the fire. Verse four, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. I have taken away your sin. I will put fine garments on you. Get this, friends, you didn't pull yourself out of the fire. Jesus did that. You didn't change your clothes. Jesus did that. Jesus is doing for Joshua what Joshua could not do for himself. And he's reestablishing Joshua's position. He's redeeming Joshua's purpose. He's repurposing Joshua's life. Verse six says, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Now, I've got to stop to make sure we don't, understand, we don't misunderstand what's being said here, friends. God is not obligating to Joshua. He's not obligating Joshua to obedience. God never obligates anybody to obedience. He's empowering Joshua to obedience. Remember what I just said. He has just redeemed his life. He has just repurposed his life. He has just repositioned and reestablished Joshua. This is not a, I did this for you, so you need to do this for me. That's not what he's saying. Joshua was the high priest who was unqualified to be the high priest. And through no effort of his own, 
Jesus now qualifies him to do what he's been created to do. He's now given Joshua the life that God had always intended for him to live. What does it mean to live in the robe, under the robe of his righteousness? What does this promise of righteousness mean for us practically as Jesus followers? Well, that's the question we need to answer. And I'll answer it in just a moment. Let's go on. Verse 8, it says, listen, high priest Joshua. You and your associates seated before you, you are men symbolic of things to come. This is a prophecy. I'm going to bring my servant, what, who, who is it? The branch, the branch. Now, we just, that's why I just read Jeremiah 23. In that chapter, God tells Jeremiah that Israel is like a tree and I'm going to cut it down because of her disobedience, because of her unfaithfulness. Israel is going to be reduced to a stump but I, ne- I never exposed the problem without offering the promise. Friends, you broke it. God fixed it. And so out of that stump, God is going to raise up a righteous branch. Verse 9, see the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In a single day? What day is that, do you think? Friends, without the cross, there would be no Christmas. That's the only reason why we celebrate this season. We celebrate Christmas because we have Easter. In that single day, verse 10, in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree. He's talking about prosperity. He's talking about peace and joy. He's talking about life that is truly life. And his name by which he will be called is the Lord, the Lord, our righteousness. Our filthy rags for his robe of righteousness. It's what the theologians call the great exchange, the great exchange. So picture yourself. You walk into class thinking you're just going to take notes for an hour and you realize you suddenly remember this is test day. You forgot all about it and you're completely unprepared. You are completely exposed. You don't know what to do. You do your best, but you know you're doomed. And just, just as about your as you're about to hand in your you know, hopeless defense of a student, a classmate of yours walks up to you and says, hey, give me that. Give me that. And so you exchange papers. The one he gives you already has your name on it. And the, and the one he takes from you, he erases your name and writes in his. And the grades come back, you ace the test, but he fails the test. You get the praise and he takes the condemnation. Friends, our greatest hunger is not to be ashamed. Our deepest fear is not to be presentable, not to be well-pleasing. And we do everything, excuse, blame, justify, deny. There is nothing we can do. There's a longing in all of us to be right, and we can't get it right. You might recall the names Harold Abrams and Eric Little. They were both runners, sprinters in the 1924 Olympics. Harold Abrams was a Jew uh, during a time when anti-Semitic sentiment was rising, uh, people uh, saying that Jewish men could not compete against top athletes. Jews were inferior. And so Abrams lived with this personal mission to prove the entire world wrong. And in the movie, Chariots of Fire, Abrams says this, once again, 
once again, I lift my eyes down that four-foot corridor, 100 meters long, with 10 seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Contrast that to Eric Little, who was a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who said, when I run, I sense the pleasure of God. I run in the pleasure of God. I run for the pleasure of God. And because of that, I can give up any opportunities for medals because I don't need to justify my existence. One proving his worth through his own righteousness, the other resting in the righteousness of Christ. So you're a good runner. Maybe you're the best runner. What happens when you're no longer the best runner? Because you'll not always be the best runner. And what happens when you can no longer run at all? Friends, how much anxiety, how much stress to have your whole life, your whole significance tied up in something that can be taken from you and the kind of despair that you experience when it is taken from you. This is the gospel. Jesus lived the life you could not live and erased his name and wrote in yours. He died the death assigned to you, wiping out your name and putting in his. He won the race. You could not win, but you got the medal. Second Corinthians said it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness, the Lord, our righteousness. So what does that mean? What does it mean to live in and under the robe of his righteousness. I want to suggest three things this morning. First of all, his righteousness changes our identity. It changes your identity. You are now a child of God. His robe is now your robe. So everything Jesus has, you now have, which means you have his acceptance. You have his approval. This this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Friends, those words who went to Jesus now go to you. You matter to the one who matters. You are well pleasing in the eyes of the one who matters. He gave you his robe, which means nothing that your enemy says about you, no accusation that he throws at you is true. None of that sticks. Friends, this is the gospel. Who can bring a charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus is the one who died and rose from, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. His robe, his defense, his sacrifice, it all belongs to you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are more than conquerors through him who loved you. You are covered in the robe that makes you right, right before God, right with God. It changes your identity. Secondly, it changes your obedience. It changes your obedience. I think this is a tough one for Jesus followers to to get their arms around. Why are you good if you're good at all? To to the extent that you can be good, why do you think being good is important? Why do you pursue goodness? Why, Why do you think it's important to be? There's only one who is good. Why does it matter for you to be good? When you understand that Jesus is good and that you understand that Jesus' goodness covers your goodness, when you understand what Jesus did for you, now, friends, it doesn't necessarily change what you do. It doesn't change your goodness. It just, just changes why you are good. It just changes why you do good. Salvation is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. So everything that we do for God is not primarily for God. God doesn't need us to do anything. To realize that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, 
means that there's nothing we can do to prove ourselves. That's already been settled. And so the gospel properly understood Jesus doing for you what you cannot do for yourself shatters any sense of self-righteousness that you could do anything that could be right. The gospel properly understand you are far worse than you can admit and far more love than you could possibly comprehend shatters any sense of pride on your part. The gospel properly understood is not simply obeying the things that he commands. It's living in the promise he sealed for us. Friends, he didn't save you to control you. He didn't die for you to manipulate you. He didn't hang on the cross totally exposed so you could just feel guiltier about your filthy rags. He gave you a robe of righteousness so that you could discover the life he died to give you, the life that is truly life. Friends, the cross already proves that he loves you. So why wouldn't you entrust your life to what he says? Why wouldn't you just do what he says? Why wouldn't you believe that the life he died to give you is a life worth pursuing? Do you understand obedience now? You don't do that to get him to like you. He already does. You do what he says to to experience the life he died to give you. You broke it. He fixed it. So why wouldn't you do what he says to experience all that he's promised? And so I don't cast away my efforts to be good. I don't throw away my obedience. I just don't trust any of that to prove my worth. I trust Jesus. In my obedience, I trust Jesus to give me the life he's promised, a life that is truly life. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Here's the the last thing. His righteousness changes my relationships. Now, of course, we understand that his righteousness changes my relationship with God. I am now right before God. I am now right with God. But friends, there is so much more to this. Again, the gospel properly understood that there is nothing I can do to make him love me more. There is nothing I've done to make him love me less. Changes my relationship, not just with God, but it changes my relationship with you. Jesus loves me. I am well-pleasing in his sight. I I can't fully comprehend that. I just take it by faith. I receive it as a gift. I I live as if it were true because I believe it is true. And the more I believe it and the more I live in it, the better not only can I love God, but the better I can love you because I love you regardless of how you love me. I mean, this is the gospel. Jesus loved me before I ever loved him. So I can love you before you would ever love me or if you ever never love me. That's that's our problem, right? I mean, we kind of live in this, if you knew me, you wouldn't like me kind of world. And so we're constantly projecting what we think you want to see in us to make us well-pleasing in your sight. Friends, the gospel shatters all of that. I matter to the one who matters most. I am accepted in Jesus. I am well-pleasing in Jesus. I don't need to promote myself. I don't need to protect myself. I don't don't need to make it about myself. I don't need to be self-serving or self-conscious or self-righteous or self-protecting or self-justifying. Jesus loves me before I I ever loved him, which means I can love you without ever needing to be loved back. I mean, it's a great thing if you love me back, but if you don't, my love is found in Jesus. And you know what you call that? Freedom, the great exchange, the Lord is my righteousness.
So with that thought in mind, let's celebrate. We want to share a time of communion today. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange, my filth for his purity, my sin for his righteousness, my punishment for his reward. In communion, friends, we remember the one who loved us and we live differently because of that. So let me read the words of institution and let's celebrate communion together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.